Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast designed to cover the legal information profession with a slant toward technology and management. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, Greg, you know, we joke around a lot on this podcast, but on this one, we're going to get a little more serious because now we're almost one month into the partial shutdown of the U.S. government. And there are serious effects that are happening in the legal and legal information world. Yeah, we normally have Emily Feltrin on for a quick segment each month to discuss her efforts with the American Association of Law Libraries, or AALL, and government relations issues. Well, on this episode, we're going to spend a bit more time with Emily talking with her uh, because this is becoming what I used to call in the Army a cluster fudge, only we didn't say fudge. You know, we we say that outside of the Army, too. (laughs) What? (laughs) So Emily's going to walk us through some of the effects of the government shutdown and what it means for legal information professionals, lawyers, and anyone else who relies on the U.S. government for information. I'm also going to talk with Joe Lytle, the Information Security Director at my firm of Jackson Walker. So I've been wanting to do this for a while, so I was able to call him up and ask ask for a favor. He's going to give us a bit of a primer on what it means when the IT folks in the government are furloughed. Yeah, that should be very interesting. Yeah, speaking of which, Marlene, did you know that furloughed workers are actually banned from doing any work whatsoever? I did not. I did not know that. Yeah. So even if they wanted to help with things like, you know, renewing those important security certificates for the government websites, they can't. So I didn't realize just how brutal the shutdown was for the furloughed workers. You know, I know we all know probably someone who Mm -hmm. is furloughed or is working without pay right now. And I actually know one family in Los Angeles where the librarian is furloughed and the other family member is on strike with the teacher's union. Oh, my gosh. Little little double whammy. So I hope uh, Mm -hmm. both, both things get resolved soon for both of them. Yeah, me too. Well, let's jump into this week's Information Inspirations. So for this week, I have a couple of quick but very important inspirations that I wanted to highlight before I jumped in, and that is that the law library world lost a legend this month when Eileen Searles, the former law library director at St. Louis University Law School, died earlier this month. Eileen was director there for almost 50 years, if you can believe that. It's a long time. Who stays at a job for 50 years anymore, right? Not not anybody I know. Mm -hmm. So... You know, this is also very close to us here at the Geek and Review because Eileen is also the aunt of Eve Searles, who is part of the music that we play here on the podcast. So our condolences go out to Eileen's friends, family, and all of those who she mentored in the library world. Yes, we're very sorry. All right. Well, sticking with the somber theme, I also want to point out that it's been six years since we lost Aaron Schwartz to suicide. Aaron was an information rebel who believed that information which the public paid for should not be behind paywalls. So whether that was PACER data or the government-funded science uh, scientific data through sources like JSTOR. If you don't know much about Aaron Schwartz and what he was doing to free information, I highly suggest that you read up on his efforts. Yeah, so Greg, um, I know there's a documentary. Actually, I think there's a couple documentaries out there, but the one I saw on on Aaron was The Internet's Own Boy, which is available on Vudu and Amazon Prime and a few other places if people want to learn more about um, Aaron and his life. All right, thanks. I didn't even know about that one, so I'll check that one out as well. 
My one information inspiration this time around is, you know, if you've got $29 in a grudge. Um, <laughs> I have $29 in a grudge. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this just might be for you, Marlene. <laughs> so according to a Forbes report, there's a company called The Spinner which sells a unique online manipulation service. That, oh, that sounds great. ominous, doesn't it? <laughs> so for the That's 20- fantastic. Oh, God. <laughs> so for the $29 feed, it will surreptitiously show articles about going vegetarian or buying a dog or initiating sex, which, you know, happens to be its most popular campaign. And it will point these to whoever you want. So the list of examples of people using this include two workers that decided to use it to convince a coworker who they didn't like to quit their job. It also had how people try to influence their partners into initiating sex. Again, their most popular campaign. There was one custom campaign, which the Forbes article pointed out, where a guy targeted his own wife to convince her how playing video games for hours a day was actually a good thing. Oh my God. So, it's like I, I want to be horrified, but all I can do is just keep sitting here laugh every time you read them. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're like me, you're thinking, hmm, what could I do with twenty nine dollars? So you know the it's it's funny, but the you know the also the scary thing is if you don't think people can be influenced by what they see on social media, yeah, go ahead so and check. Wrong. Check, you're so wrong. Yeah, check out this article. <laughs> All right. That's what I had, Marlene. What do you got for us? All right. Well, so Greg, you know, I'm a Jersey girl. Mm -hmm. And as a Jersey girl, I'm very serious about my pizza. I know. But you also know. I've been with you when we've uh, ate pizza. It's it's not pretty. (laughs) I have high standards. Yes, you do. (laughs) And this week is National Pizza Week. All right. So if you live in the U.S., it is statistically likely you will eat around 6,000 slices of pizza over the course of your life. And if you don't, me and my kids will make up the difference for you. I was going to say, I I think I'm on the high end of that one. Yeah, I, I think so too. But here's a couple of fun facts for you. The first American cities to start selling pizza were New York, Boston, New Haven, Connecticut, interesting, and Trenton, New Jersey. Yeah. Yay. New Jersey. I wonder if New Haven is, uh, if they were selling it at Yale. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. At first, pizza was only sold by the pie. And in 1933, Patsy Lancieri, did I get that right? I hope so. (laughs) Of Patsy's Pizza in New York City started selling by the slice. And of course, you know, the rest is history. And before I get into trouble with our Midwest friends, the first known Chicago deep dish pizzas were created in 1943 by the restaurant that later became the Pizzeria Uno chain. Now, I, I read that and I, I'm, you know, I'm basically saying, you know, what I saw in the article, but that, that sounds really urban legendy to me that it was Pizzeria Uno that was, you know, that, that basically gets credit for the first deep dish pizza. So Chicagoans, is it Chicagoans, Chicagoites? Yeah, one Chicago of those. Ites? Sure. Let us know if that's true. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, to the the winner gets to write the history. So Pizzeria <laughs> Uno is still around. So I imagine they're they're helping modify those Wikipedia pages on saying that they are the the ones. Yes, it's, yes. it's kind of like here in, in Houston, where Mama Nymphas was the first to create, I think, the frozen margarita. Oh. So good to know. Yeah, little, <laughs> little side note there. Yes. 
So I saw a great story in Law.com about a woman, Haley Moss, who just got admitted to the Florida Bar, you know, which isn't really news, except that Haley is diagnosed with autism. Now, her parents were told she would never graduate from high school, she'd never make friends, she'd never have a driver's license, and here she is getting sworn in. And she already has a job. Now, I've seen a number of news items recently where the focus is on diversity in the legal industry. And the focus is on people who are on the spectrum. Uh, it seems that there's a growing recognition that these people offer very unique skills and perspective that can be quite valuable in legal practice. Now, the attorney who hired Haley has a son with autism, and he said that Haley's accomplishment gave him great hope for his son. So I think this is a really welcome trend, and I look forward to hearing more success stories like this. Well, good for good for Haley, and the props to the attorney who hired her to... Uh, come in. So what I'm what I'm thinking. I don't know if you've seen the new television series called The Good Doctor, where the doctor has autism. So maybe, no. maybe Haley can can inspire the good lawyer. Yeah. So. <laughs> so in addition to practice, she she could be she could be a consultant on on you know a TV series. Absolutely. Well, Great. Keep up the good work, Haley. Yes. A couple other inspirations. So I saw a tweet last week where. The author highlighted how partners listen to associates' process redesign ideas, and, and you know, and here's the kicker: they immediately endorsed and adopted them. the The tweet said this brought instant credibility for the project and instant morale boost for the associates. Now, Greg, what a great way to promote a culture of innovation, right? Yep. And I really appreciate hearing that the partners, you know, with all their expertise in the field, were willing to listen, you know, be flexible and adapt to the needs of the associates. So bravo. Well done. Well done indeed. Mm -hmm. And from the world of tech, bots. 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 Namely, R- RPA, or Robotic Process Automation. I'm seeing this come up a lot more in the news recently. Uh, I know there's a handful of law firms that are using this tech to streamline work, which is good because it seems their clients are doing this as well. I just saw a post on LinkedIn for a webinar on Deutsche Telekom and another Monday using RPA to automate client-facing as well as back-office processing in a scalable way. Blue Prism, which is a vendor of RPA tech, holds a forum which they say is the largest RPA forum on the planet, who knows, where other large and international companies discuss how they're using that tech on a scalable level. Interesting. So the bots are taking over. Ah, the bots are taking over. (laughs) Bot, bot, bot. Bot, bots. So I guess this wraps up our information inspirations for this episode yes it does all right well let's jump into our interview with emily feltran from double so hi there emily thanks for taking the time to talk with us today you know, as of this recording, we are, what, some 26 days into the partial government shutdown, and there's no end in sight at this point. So for those of us who rely upon government information, how is this going to affect us? Hey, Greg. The longest government shutdown in history has a significant impact on access to government information. Information on government websites may not be available for a few reasons. Uh, an agency cuts off access because it 
it's closed and materials not being updated or maintained or information or data is not being collected during the shutdown mm. or even because the security certifications for .gov sites have expired. Unlike the shutdown in 2013, the Library of Congress and the Government Publishing Office remain open because they're funded through the Legislative Branch Appropriations Bill. One of the five appropriations bills completed prior to that October 1st start of the fiscal year 2019. That means there is uninterrupted access to GovInfo, the replacement for FEDSIS, okay. Congress.gov, the Law Library of Congress, and other legislative branch sites. It also means the Copyright Office remains open. All right. So you're going to hit us with the good news first, but I'm sure there's something that's affected. <laughs> so what? tell us what the bad news is. Well, there is always some bad news. <laughs> there lots always of is. information. Government <laughs> shutdown, always some bad news. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's true that lots of information isn't available right now. For example, because the National Archives and Records Administration is closed, so is the Office of the Federal Register. Mm. That means no updates to the ECFR. It also means federalregister.gov is not being supported, though the official edition of Federal Register is available through GPO's GovInfo. Okay. And while GPO is open and the agency's catalog of U.S. government publications, or CGP, remains available, GPO can't assure that all permanent URLs pointing to other federal agency resources will work during the shutdown because they may point to content on the websites of agencies that have been closed. <laughs> so, Emily, what about the federal courts? I know they were operating on some type of emergency funds through, what was it, last Friday, then this Friday, now next Friday. What's the outlook for the courts and the information that comes out of the courts? That's a great question. The administrative office of the U.S. courts is operating the judiciary on limited funds, as you said. And the courts have made several announcements about how they will continue to operate. So the latest announcement came out on January 16th, that the courts have funding to maintain operations until January 25th. For now, access to court records through PACER and the CMECF is interrupted. But we don't know what will happen once funding runs out. So what about the large amounts of data that the government produces for things like economics or agriculture or labor, all of those? What's going to be missed during the shutdown? The Pew Research Center put together a really nice summary of some of the data sources not being updated during the shutdown. For example, the Census Bureau is closed, except for those working on the 2020 census. That means no data on new home sales and construction spending. And because the Department of Justice is not funded, there's no data on crime and sentencing and prisons and other law enforcement because the ag department is closed. There are no crop and livestock production estimates and no GDP estimates because commerce is closed. The list goes on. That's going to drive the data wonks crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, how about our librarian peers? What's going to happen to them during the shutdown? So whether or not agency libraries are shuttered depends on the agency. In general, federal departments and agencies that face a lapse in appropriations are required by law to shut down operations with only, quote, accepted activities relating to the safety of human life or protection of property. Agencies develop contingency plans outlining actions to be taken when Congress fails to enact appropriations under guidance from the Office of Management and Budget. For agencies impacted by this shutdown, it is likely that libraries are closed and librarians and library workers are furloughed. Hmm. 
So one of the things that, that we may not think of as law librarians and as legal information professionals is that, you know, the U.S. government is actually a vendor to us. We get a lot of information from them. And if one of my non-governmental vendors were to shut down for a month or reduce services, I'd really worry about the quality of information coming from them, both during the time that they are shut down and once they are back up. Is this any different? Is the information coming from the federal government trustworthy? Yeah, so beyond the policy of this particular shutdown are larger questions about information policy and information management and the role of government and libraries in providing permanent public access to information. Some of those questions are what is government's responsibility to provide continuous comprehensive access to information even during a lapse in funding? What role do non-governmental organizations play in providing access to government information and partnering with the government and the private sector to provide access to information? And how do we assure authenticity and official status is maintained? So what's uh, AALL's stance on these questions? AALL believes it is the government's responsibility to create and provide access to government information. But libraries, the legal community, private publishers, innovators, and entrepreneurs can and do play a role in providing access to, to and preserving government information. For example, federal depository libraries provide access to print and electronic information in partnership with the government publishing office. And we need strong information policies to assure comprehensive, equitable, permanent public access to official, authentic, and preserved government information. So I want to jump back a little bit to workers who are or furloughed that you were talking about a little bit earlier. You know, one of the things I've heard from other law librarians is that the people who hand a FOIA Act requests are part of the furloughed group. Uh, does this mean that no one's going to be able to process those FOIA requests? You're right, Marlene. The shutdown does impact compliance with the Freedom of Information Act. For example, when trying to submit a request through the Department of Interior's automated FOIA portal, you'll get a message that, quote, no FOIA request can be accepted or processed at this time, unquote. The ability to submit FOIA requests really does vary by agency. Many agencies continue to accept FOIA requests, though they may not process them. After the 2013 shutdown, the Department of Justice issued guidance stating that FOIA offices should keep the clock running on the 20 days allowed under law to respond to each request for public information even during a government shutdown. So is there anything that can help us insulate ourselves in the future uh, if and when, probably when, the government shuts down again? Yeah, the, the fragility of access to online information is one of the reasons that AAAL has been advocating for changes to Title 44 of the U.S. Code on public printing and documents that would update information policy laws to reflect the digital age. For example, small changes in the law could give the government publishing office additional authority to develop a national collection of government information and lead efforts to assure permanent public access to digital government infra information in cooperation with a geographically distributed network of libraries. And while access to most information will be restored after this shutdown ends, we're going to continue encountering restricted access and disappearing data at each government shutdown unless there's policy change here in Washington. So I would encourage law librarians and legal information professionals and those who care about access to information to stay informed about access issues, not just during this government shutdown, but also throughout the year. AAAL members can sign up for the AAAL Advocates Community to get updates from our Government Relations Committee on these issues. And non-members can take a look at AllNet for AAAL's latest policy positions and briefs and updates. 
Becoming aware of the information policy issues that impact access to information is this first step in advocating for change. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Emily, for taking the time to educate us on this whole government shutdown issue. You know, I, I hope next month when we talk that, that we talk about happier things. Me too, Greg. <laughs> yeah, this is this has been some some great feedback in terms of, of how you can you know sign up and, and you know pay attention to what's going on and get information about it, as we all should. So, Greg, Emily talked about security certificates expiring, and, you know, I think we both admit that that we <laughs> we are not familiar with this area. So uh, we went to an expert to get more details, and you reached out to Joe Lytle, the Director of Information Security at Jackson Walker. Yeah, it's good to be able to walk down the uh, hallway here and grab someone that's an expert in, in the field. Hey, thanks for joining us today, Joel. So one of the things that many of us in the legal information field is hearing is that some of the .gov websites have not renewed their security certificates during the shutdown. So since this may be outside the scope of many of us, I was hoping that you could give us a quick little overview of what the security certificates do on a website and what happens when they expire. Sure. So uh, security certificates basically do two things. One is they provide the encryption key that allows for the traffic between your computer and the web server to be encrypted. Mm -hmm. And additionally, that key allows you to verify that that server is, in fact, what it says it is. So if you're going to FBI.gov, if that server certificate doesn't actually say FBI.gov and go up to a a trusted cert for that domain, uh, you're going to get a red padlock saying that the certificate is broke. Okay. Is there there any chance that... If the security certificate isn't isn't going, is there any opportunities now for hackers uh, to either spoof the, you know, so let's say it's the FBI, to spoof the FBI.gov site, or is that maybe an overblown concern on my part? It is possible um, because, and the reason that I think it becomes possible is because when you go to that site, you may be expecting to get that red padlock. So you may not go up, right-click on it, view the certificate to see where it really came from. So rather than, I think what that forces us to do is if we're going to .gov sites uh, before they ever get all this stuff straightened back out, is that we really need to trust but verify. So go up, right-click, view that certificate, and when you do that, you can see the what they call the certificate chain. So the website will have a certificate, for example, www.fbi.gov, but that certificate will have been issued by another certificate server, which was probably issued by another certificate server, which could be a GoDaddy or a, uh, any of those big certificate uh, issuers. Right. So and so really on and so on and so on, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let me clarify that, Greg. By doing that verification, if you see that it goes on up to a trusted issuer that you may have heard of before, um, it's probably going to be legitimate. But if it then goes off to the, a bunch of places you don't recognize at all um, as certificate issuers, it could be you know someone trying to sit in the middle of your, your conversation. And, and I should really be concerned if the certificate was issued in Cyrillic in Russian, right? Um, absolutely. 
<laughs> or Farsi or Arabic. <laughs> Basically, your your advice is uh, trust but verify and go through if you if you have any questions about it who uh, let's say uh, i had some questions here at jackson walker i ran into that would you suggest i call you to be that verification if i if i'm not sure absolutely i would say contact our security team um, and we can give you a pretty good idea of whether it's legitimate or not all right well i think joel that's pretty much all we need Thank you very much for uh, talking with us. Not a problem. Have a great evening. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, Greg, this has certainly been one of our more serious episodes since we started the podcast. Hopefully, the shutdown will be over soon. Though, it sure doesn't seem likely. No, it doesn't. Our thoughts go out to all of those affected by the government shutdown. Yeah, I know I'm going to be extra nice to the TSA screeners as I travel over the next couple of weeks. Me too. Speaking of which, (laughs) before I forget, I think we will both be at Legal Tech in New York at the end of the month. So Mm -hmm. we may be hunting down some folks to interview for some upcoming episodes. So just let let you know now, you've you've all been warned. (laughs) I want to say thanks again to our guests, Emily Feltrin from AAAL and Joe Lytle from Jackson Walker. Remember to subscribe to the Geek and Review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're linked on. You can contact us on Twitter at GayBauerM or at Glambert with your comments and suggestions. And once again, special thanks to Jerry David DeSecca for his original music. Thank uh, you, Jerry. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. All right, talk to you later, Marlene. Bye. Bye.